This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Pierce Robertson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. How is Germany treating you? Um, Germany is uh, treating its population in a um, fairly nasty fashion with COVID madness, which seems to be dissipating at a much slower rate than it is in other uh, European countries. Um, so things are a bit rough, but but I'm you know I'm kind of happy to report that my daughters for the first time in two a year plus haven't had to wear masks in school. That was on Friday, <laughs> so they've got rid of Gee. that. But um, but yeah, it, it's pretty it's pretty rough in Germany. Um, and you know I'm, I'm I I don't think that the um underlying agendas have gone away with COVID nineteen, and I think all the infrastructure is in there for it to be reactivated again. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But um, but yeah, it's easing now. But it's been pretty tough here. So not a not a happy bunny. Yeah, when you say COVID nineteen, I kind of I kind of see the term now as a proxy mm -hmm. for a whole yeah. bunch of other things. Yeah. Yeah, uh, me, me too. I mean, COVID nineteen. I, I think most well, most people who have been thinking critically uh, for a, for a while have now reached the conclusion that it's it's not just the fact that they've got things wrong or the scientists have got it wrong. That there's other things going on. That COVID nineteen is an event which has been used to push forward agendas, political and economic agendas. This is this paper I just did for Panda. Um, cock up or conspiracy, uh, understanding uh, COVID nineteen is a structural deep Ooh. event. Um, <laughs> that's it's um, a that's a taboo. That's a, tu a taboo oh, word, yeah. Pierce. I can't say yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because the reason why I used it because it's uh, I, I I most I, I came it became burned into my sort of memory cells when I was listening or reading part of the Chilcot report and it was somebody from MI six or something just. And there's a comment about the question was like, was it a cock up or a conspiracy? And it was like, always a cock up, my good man, always a cock up. <laughs> you can imagine the right <laughs> smile. So, you know, it's, it, it's what, you know, people in power, it's like a little in, inside joke, I guess. Yeah, of course, never a conspiracy. There's never any intentionality. There's mm. never any plan. People are always a cock up. And so it's reflecting that. But yes, it, it's a radioactive term. And, and this is, you know, part of what I tried to say in the article was that, well, um, Conspiracies, if we understand conspiracies as powerful actors um, negotiating, communicating, engaging in deception, pushing issues forward about being transparent, you know, pretty wide definition, then of course that kind of thing happens in politics. Um, and it's naive to think that it doesn't. Um, but of course, the conspiracy label yeah. has been very effective at terrifying people because it's used—it's not used in its legal sense, of course. You know, conspiracy is used in a pejorative sense, and you know, people <laughs> we laugh, but you know, you say, say conspiracy theorists, and you think of the tinfoil hat, you think of the crazy guy with all the lines yeah. on the chalkboard, and so on, um, and you're—you know—you you feel like an idiot. Um, but that's entirely. But that's thanks to the. Yeah, that's thanks to the CIA, essentially, isn't it? Well, yeah, there is a, there's a history on that and a bit of controversy. I mean, some people sort of say, oh, the CIA invented the term, but... No, they didn't the term, invent it, but the, they the certainly term, weaponized it. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the accurate analysis. That In the JFK years after the assassination, when they were trying to mm. suppress questioning and, and dissent over that, um, I, I understand. I've never studied it myself, but I, I understand from people who do study conspiracy theory um, that it was, as you say, weaponized and used as a way of closing people down. Um, so for sure, yep. You know, powerful actors do things, and going back to what we were saying in, in relation to COVID nineteen, the point is, is that you know, powerful actors have been at work during COVID nineteen. Um, you, you don't even have to get into this territory of was it an instigated event and so on, and that's one particular hypothesis out mm -hmm. there. You don't need to go there. You can just say, well, look, this is a big event, and it gets used. Powerful actors think right. This is a way of moving forward an agenda. Um, and if one cannot realize that, then, then one's got one's head in the sand. 
Um, but yeah. I think that's pretty clear, and that's pretty clear to most people now, as, 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 as we were saying before, that there's a recognition now that yeah. there's an awful lot more going on, and exactly as you said, COVID-19 is a proxy, as it, as it were. Um, but, you know, for, for however many of us have reached that awareness, you know, there's a big, all, there's a big section of population out there, apart from the COVIDians, the COVID witnesses who are completely wedded mm. to it, there's a big proportion of the population who, who do realize it's wrong and it's all nonsense, but probably are going for the cock-up understanding. And, and that's a, a dangerous thing to do because it, it probably wasn't a cock-up. <laughs> the evidence doesn't indicate it as a cock-up at all. It's something which was used. Um, and unless people, unless a bigger section of the population starts to get on top of that um, and act accordingly... Um, you bet we're going to be having the same problems, you know, in in the coming months and years with um, these agendas being pushed forward, whether it's central banks, digital currency, digitized society, all of those things which have clearly been under, being pushed under the radar or under the cover of COVID-19. They're not going to go away, right? We're going to be... Mm. We, and at the rate we're going, we will be heading into the autumn and they'll just declare a virus and they'll lock us all down again and we'll be back to square one i did notice what was happening in shanghai um over the last yeah i saw that was, <clears throat> we've got to keep our eyes wide open on this um but i mean conspiracy theory kind of goes hand in hand with the term propaganda yeah, how, how do you mean? Do you, do you mean that, that propaganda necessarily involves some kind of conspiracy, or that is that? No, no, like the oh. the perpetuation. So, in other words, we mentioned um, the CIA, and you mentioned JFK's assassination. We're talking about the Warren Commission report, and of course, mm, yeah, you might you might know that the the CIA literally infiltrated a bunch of media houses for what the next decade to try and shape the narrative. Mm. Yeah. So you mean in, in, in conspiracy theory is, is is a tool of propaganda? Yeah. Yeah. Abs absolutely. I mean, you see it time and time again. I mean, this, this might be a connection through to the topic you wanted to focus on today, but mm. for sure, um, you know, part of, in a sense, you know, the biggest part of propaganda is is is, is getting things not to be discussed. <laughs> Yeah. It's the silence is right. That's the, the biggest act of manufacturing consent um, and so on. And, and, of course, the conspiracy theory label is precisely about that. It's about stopping anyone from talking about um, these, these kinds of issues. Um, so it is. It, it's, it's a propaganda tactic. It's very effective. Less effective today than it was maybe five years ago or ten years ago. Um, I remember Mark Crispin Miller saying about a year ago that increasing numbers of his students completely switched on to the way the term is used. So, um, you know, I think its effectiveness has diminished. And, you know, we, we hear this as a regular refrain in relation to COVID-19, this idea that, um, okay, yesterday's conspiracy theory is today's fact, because, of course, we've you know, all the people who talked about digital currency or digital ID, etc., um, at the start of COVID-19 were accused of being nutcase conspiracy theorists. And, um, you know, so don't worry, it's just two weeks to flatten the curve and it'll all be fine. And, and here we are two years later, central bank, digital currencies, this all coming true. So, yeah, it, its effectiveness has diminished. And I think more people have learned the way it's used to shut down debate. But having said that, um, you know, I, I bet you there's, there's a good number of, you know, liberal extreme center or however you want to label this category of academics and journalists who, who you know, live in fear of ever being accused of being a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> and so they try, give a wide berth to any 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 kind of analysis which could remotely be interpreted as a conspiracy theory. Um, so it, it it still has a controlling effect. Um, on, but on how do you know, Pierce? How do you know though? Because I mean, how's this for a segue? But if we're talking about war propaganda, how do you how do you know if 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 people are more awake because for example we know for a fact that google and DuckDuckGo uh, adjust their algorithms to present a particular narrative 
you wouldn't you wouldn't be any, any the wiser. Mm. Um, I think. Okay, look for sure, in, especially in terms of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, mm. You know, you don't have access to opinion polls or reliable opinion polls to be able to figure out who's who's woken up to all this stuff and who hasn't. I think as a general observation, certainly in the last two years um, with COVID-19, that, that there has been a decline, as far as I understand, in trust in mainstream media. Um, and that indicates that people are less willing or more people are less, more people are more willing to question uh, mainstream mm. media. So, you know, you might then have Ukraine and you might have a period of intensification because of the propaganda. So more people are being pulled into the contrails of it and believing it and so on because the propaganda is so intense. Um, but, but, you know, but, but war fever and war propaganda tends to be relatively short-lived in the sense that, you know, you get these rally effects when conflicts kick off and people get behind the troops mm. and so on. Um, and you saw this in, in the Iraq war in 2003, we had big opposition to it. But then when the war got started, people rallied behind the flag and so on. So you have that kind of effect going on. But I suspect, you know, and, and this is very, very impressionistic on my part, but my sense is that they're even struggling now with the narrative a little yeah. bit. Um, and sort of, you know, when, when the conflict initiated, you know, first of all, you, you had Biden sort of coming out with this kind of very macho, we're going to destroy Russia economically. Um, and then goes begging to Venezuela for oil. Um, and, and you also had, you know, you had Gordon Brown, you know, who's the deputy prime minister um, in the Blair during the Iraq invasion. You had Gordon Brown, and of course you had Condoleezza Rice, you know, going onto mm -hmm. the airwaves, um, you know, clutching the pearls about Russian aggression and international criminal corps. And, and even that, and that's at the height, just as Russia had started the military operation and, you know, in a sense, they've got the greatest opportunity there for sort of throwing the book at Russia and, and getting some PR points out of it. Even then, I mean, you could see the kind of, you could hear the laughter in the background when Condoleezza Rice was saying, this is an act of aggression, with people mm -hmm. sort of saying, wait a minute, what about Iraq in 2003? Same with Gordon Brown, you know. You know, so I, 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 I'm not convinced that, 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 that they can get much of a kind of a, propaganda bounce out of Ukraine for a very long period of time. And I think that when hopefully whatever's going on in Ukraine comes to a, an end, yeah, I'm assuming it doesn't come into a protracted war or an escalation, and if that doesn't happen, it comes to an end, then I think you're very rapidly going to go back to people who are going to be sitting there, and a lot of people are going, well, we just had the Ukraine, and everyone sort of started having, you know, Ukrainian flags on their Twitter handles. And right before that, we had two years of COVID-19, which was, wait a minute, there's all this stuff coming out about injection, harm, and, and protests in Canada, etc. You know, all these massive events going on. And with all this doubt and skepticism about what they're being told, that's going to still be there at the other side of, of mm. Ukraine. And, and I think there is a big, my, my guesstimate is that there is a bigger, body mass of people now who have woken up to propaganda, woken up to the way term current conspiracy theory is used, have woken up to all the problems there are in our institutions. Um, and that will remain. And then we'll see where it goes from there. I mean, I guess some people, are, I saw a Twitter picture today of a couple of aliens or were they predator characters? Well, Predator is an alien, isn't he, in that movie? Mm. Um, and there's you know, a couple of predator characters sitting there saying, are, are we on next? And he goes, no, no, they're pulling another virus <laughs> cut. And so, so you do kind of think, what are they going to pull next? Is it, is it going to be that meteor? Or is it going to be deep impact kind of thing for real? Um, or is it, you know, I mean, I, I have seen some discussion of, of aliens in mainstream US media. Was it in 2021? They, they were dripping out those things well. Maybe the, the, the CIA and the Defense Department do actually have some evidence uh, of yes. aliens. I remember that. <laughs> you can say, okay, so they're going to try and play that one up kind of thing. Um, who knows? Um, you know, they, they've played a bit of a blinder with, you know, with a, a virus and shutting down societies and 
um, without grinning too much, causing huge destruction to lives and livelihoods around the world. So they've pulled that one. So, so they might pull out another big event. Um, you know, we have a kind of a, sort of a rolling thunder of <laughs> propagandized events to try to distract, control, and push through agendas. Um, who knows what will happen? Um, but I still think that there's a there's a bigger body of people now than there has been. So to, tomorrow well, evening, I mean, for example, I'm giving a talk at Debasis, which is a, a German party which formed in opposition to lockdown, and you know I'm going to give a talk to the local you know chapter or group of of that tomorrow. Um, and mm. these are all sort of you know pretty normal people, um, and they're all pretty. Uh, alert to what's been going on and and you know i'm you know i don't know an awful lot about debasis but it's still you know you you have this going on throughout the west you've got groups mm -hmm. movements political parties you've got organizations like panda world council for health robert kennedy's uh, children's defense is has been very focused on on covid19 related issues obviously i can as well vaccine stuff so you know, there's there's a lot going on, and 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 that that won't get switched up overnight. So, um, but still, Pierce, I think you're right. I think you're right. In the last two years, I've seen an incredible amount of people just in my own circles, uh, kind of open their eyes to things that they previously were blinded to. But there's a weird kind of polarization because it's. It, it's become more extreme. So you are, you're more alert of those people who look like utter sheep. You know, you see them a mile away and, and you wouldn't have noticed that maybe five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's a good point. Actually in Germany, as I suggested that, that they lifted the requirement on masks in most spaces and, um, and and you know I was, we, we I went happily to the shops on at the weekend to get some new clothes and make me look less like a tramp as my daughter used to say, <laughs> and 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 I was a bit disappointed at the number of people who are still wearing masks, and then of course you mm. can suddenly see the numbers of people who really do believe this, um, and so on. So I I think you're right. Is it on the one hand it, it's with the polarization that we have, it, it's okay, you have that visibility occurring, but you also have this problem of polarization, right? And and sort of, you know, if if there's you know if you buy into this idea that elites like the divide and rule and so on, then yeah, this is a, a worrying problem. Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of hoping that um, you know the people who've been completely propagandized by this will diminish over time setting aside then pulling another kind of event um, but numbers of people who are really sort of completely indoctrinated with it is, is probably not a majority anyway and, and that will diminish mm. and over time as, as more information and as people become more aware of things like what's been going on underlying agendas i mean russell brand talks about the world economic forum all the time can you believe and he, it and he he has millions of followers okay you know he's, he's a popular very popular person so you, you gotta think that or you gotta expect that that's gonna seep through and mm -hmm. you know and there aren't gonna be i don't think there's gonna be many people jumping over moving from our position say into or even a position mm -hmm. of it's just a cock-up into sort of, I completely believe them. That's not going to be happening. It's only going to be coming in our direction. Um, so I, I think, you know, despite the polarization, which is, is, is a problem in terms of, you know, effective political action and pushback against all of this, um, despite that, I, I think, again, yeah, there is, I mean, maybe there's no scope for hope here and we're all doomed. If that's the case, then we can switch off now and we just talk about something completely different. Um, but if, if we assume that there is some possibility that, 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 that things we can do something about what's been happening, about our political systems, then, you know, there is something to work with. And, mm. and um, I, mean, I do hear in some of the quarters of, you know, some of our kind of community of independent sort of uh, outside voices or whatever you want to call us, you know, some people are saying we're all doomed. Um, 
I don't know if you, I don't have you so. ever, I don't know if you've ever watched Dad's Army, but the British comedy about the Home Guard, the, the granddads who are sort of given guns to defend against a potential no. Nazi invasion. So it's all these incompetent old men. Kind of, so it's, 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 it's a beloved British sitcom, but there's this <laughs> Scottish character in it. And he just says, "We're all doomed. We're all doomed." Um, <clears throat> Dad's yeah. Army. That's on me. All right, I'm, you, you, I'm, I'm making watch, notes. I think, I think it was it. Fred, I can't remember the name of the character, but um, you know, and there are some people saying we're doomed. That 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 Ukraine has has reactivated the the propaganda mobilization of the most of the population, and it's destroyed the resistance which emerged over COVID nineteen, and that we're all completely screwed now. We're all doomed. Um, I don't think it's as bad as that. I, I, for the reasons yeah. you know, we've been discussing, I think there's there is there's a body of people. I think we just have to think constructively how we help to build that body and and move things forward. Um, that's well, a difficult thing, but um, I mean, we're talking about Ukraine on the surface, but here's the thing: it suddenly led me to a few other hotspots when it comes to war propaganda, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, and of course, Syria. Why is Syria important? Well, I, I think it is useful, and, and, and this is in relation to the Ukraine, but it is useful to think about, okay, propaganda, but also to think about all the wars that we've seen in the last 20 years, because, because there is a um, intensification of Western war fighting and belligerence at the point of 9-11. Um, 9-11 itself is a controversial event, and as I've said many times in public, you know, the official story is clearly not true. Um, but yeah, I just watch Building 7. Now. But, yeah, mm. yeah. but then there's, there's also clearly it was, and I don't think this is disputable, or it's not reasonable to dispute this, that, that 9-11 was used to initiate regime change wars in the international system. And, and you see this with Afghanistan immediately, and then you see it with Iraq in 2003. Um, you then have a kind of a period of, of, of apparent, well, the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq continued, um, but a little bit of a gap. And then you have Libya and Syria kicking off around 2011. Um, and of course, those were presented these kind of Arab Spring revolutions. But of course, Libya, you know, Gaddafi was overthrown at the point of NATO intervention in the country. Um, and in Syria, as has become clearer over time, and I was blind to all of this for, for a long time, um, there was substantial involvement of external act actors in the Syrian war and a significant degree of, um, significant degree is a polite way of putting it, extensive attempts to arm and to arm extremist groups in order to overthrow the Syrian government. And all of these wars grow out of what we saw in at, at the point of 9-11, which were planned prior to that. There was planning on regime change wars prior to 9-11, but you, know, you can see the documents from the Chilcot Inquiry where Bush and Blair are talking about you know, when to hit Iraq, Syria, and Iran, etc. But all of these conflicts have grown out of that. So th th these are part of, a, you know, conflicts which are part of a broader propaganda narrative over... Islamic fundamentalist terrorism and so on, and, and that's been used to sort of that's the public explanation for what we're doing, which has changed over time. But it's always sort of kind of like been in there. I mean, I think at some point Afghanistan came about sort of you know helping Afghan women or bring democracy to Afghanistan. But the terror justification was certainly in there right at the beginning. And so all of these wars, and also in a way, what we have with Ukraine, because. You know, by 2014, there was clearly sort of increasing tensions over the Ukraine. There was the NATO eastward expansion. And where this all comes together, and it's, and it's worth people looking in, into this, but uh, Wesley Clark, who was a former Supreme Allied commander for um, Europe or Atlantic Alliance, I forget the exact um, term, but, you know, NATO commander, I mean, he, he talks about uh, uh, someone he had a meeting with in immediately after the first Gulf War, when Iraq was expelled from Kuwait. And, and the conversation, if I recall correctly, Wesley Clark, and it might have been with Wolfowitz, but I, don't quote me on that, <laughs> go, go and look it up, talked about the expectation that America would need to um, exercise its military capability 
um, in order to, you know, shore up its position in the international system before the next superpower came along. And of course, I think that the implication was China. China is going to be becoming a dominant superpower. So we need to start doing things. And of course, this is the kind of argument about 9-11 and the, and the wars mm. which flowed out of that, that it was about a neocon project or neocon neoliberal project to um, clear up problems in the international system almost as part of trying to, you know, one could say it's almost like sort of not quite a death rose, but it's, it's an empire, it's a global empire, the Western empire, uh, hegemon, realizing that its years are numbered as a dominant player and going, right, well, okay, we'll use our military capability to shore up our position. And I think that is what has been happening. And I think it has segued into... Russia, and this is where I'm becoming more speculative because I'm not focusing on it, but my sense is it's the same neocon, neoliberal power block in the West, reflecting, tied into, you know, classic military-industrial complex, the permanent war machine, as I think Obama, it might be Obama or somebody else referred to it. It's playing its last card in the Ukraine with Russia. And in yeah. a way, then it all starts to make sense because, you know, you, you have the end, collapse of, of communism and end of the Soviet Union. And then, and then you have, of course, what happened in Yugoslavia. But then you have this sort of gearing up to get muscular and get even more muscular in the international system because America was obviously muscular before that, obviously. Talk to anyone from Vietnam. Um, but there's that gearing up and then you have 9-11, you have these major wars being fought and so on. And now we've just got to the point where this entity in the West, this military industrial complex, neocon, neolib pack has taken uh, the fight, taken its last, playing its last cards on Russia in over the Ukraine. Um, and I can see that, you know, if, if, if that is what is going on, and I'm not saying that is definitely what's going on, but there is a kind of overall pattern there. And there is one element of this kind of West, the Western imperial war machine. Um, I, I suspect it's not going to win in the Ukraine what it wants to achieve. Um, and I, I, I suspect that, that Russia will probably achieve its objectives. Um, and in a way, it will, if you listen to Scott Ritter, for example, the former UN weapons inspector, I think his analysis is that this will mark, you know, ultimately a, a moment of defeat for the Western military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. we, we pulled out of Afghanistan in the summer, right? That, you know, at the diplomatic global level, that was seen as a major defeat, really, because 20 years in Afghanistan, for heaven's sake, and, and then pulling out in, a, in very sort of embarrassing circumstances. Yeah, they even and, left all their weapons behind. Yeah. And, and the other thing with the Ukraine, of course, is that, you know, as much as the West claims to have the world opinion is behind us and, you know, Gordon Brown angrily saying we must take Putin to the International Criminal Court and so on, but don't take me because um, for the Iraq invasion... I mean, you know, my understanding means certainly China has, has not weighed in against Russia. And my understanding, although this might have changed in recent weeks, was that India wasn't either. And mm -hmm. that when you actually look at the world opinion and so on, it, it's, no, you're, you're looking at the Western kind of uh, hegemon, yeah. the Western imperial well, I mean, core. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, you know, this this could be that kind of major moment in the international system where the Western, you know, the Western hegemon is, we've played all the cards we've got. Now we're looking at major transformation in the financial structure, bricks, as you say. Um, and maybe this is, you know, and, and unless we suddenly see a huge defeat of the Russian military operation in the Ukraine, yeah, and that, I'm not seeing not that happen. as far as I'm aware, um, that's not you happen. know, how is it going to end up looking? What will it make NATO look like? It will make I NATO mean, look uh, as, a, yeah. as though it's overstretched and ineffective. So, you know, maybe we are in, at that point of this being the end of, Western belligerents. I mean, that's not the only thing going on, right? But I know that there's sure. before I get shouted at by some people. I know there are other things going on, and that the Great Reset, mm. all of that stuff is still playing on. It's unclear. And the how central bankers and the central yeah, bankers, that's all that, yeah. still in play. Um, but mm. on the specifics of this kind of geostrategic moment, um, maybe it's in. And I mean, 
I'm trying to think if I'll get into trouble for this because I'm in Germany and they have talked about arresting people who express any comments which might be deemed as speak in code. Um, yeah, if, if, if this is the end of, of Western belligerence um, in the international system, that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, I've, you know, I've in 20, the last 20 years of my life, I, I've been mainly involved in studying the wars which the West has been involved in. I used to go out to NATO and lecture at their defense college to officers revolving back from Afghanistan and Iraq and mm. so on. And, and, you know, and th these have not been good things that we have been involved in. Um, and we have caused very large loss of life. So if, if, if there is in some way this acts as a point at which maybe parts of the elite in the West start turning on the permanent war lobby and saying, call it quickly, this is enough, um, that would be a good thing. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that I want Russia to win. I'm not. This is not what I'm. Not, sure. What I'm saying. Sure. <laughs> um, but it looks I'm like looking that. at the door. But but it um, looks like that. I mean, Putin plays. Putin plays pretty good chess, while Biden plays, you know, backgammon or something. Yeah. Is, is it worth mentioning Biden in this context? I mean, Biden is clearly not um, directing. But he's the US well. He's the leader of the free world. Yeah. It reminds me of the, was it in the eighties? Is it Andropov and you know the, those Russian leaders who were there, they were wheeling out kind of thing and lifting their hand. <laughs> but know. but you haven't quite you haven't quite answered my question, Piers. Yeah. I asked you earlier why then is Syria important in this uh, geopolitical uh, discussion? Well, Syria is important because it's like a half answer. It. <laughs> it's getting late, you know. Um, is because it because it's part of it's, it's part of these regime change wars which flowed out of, of yes. 9-11. So understanding where we are now and all these conflicts, Syria is a I think flows out of that and and, and so on. Um, but in in this specific, it's also important in this specific discussion we're having about Russia. It's important because in a way, okay, if we go from Afghanistan to Iraq, two thousand one, two thousand three kick the door down, invade the country, occupy, conflict carries on, carries on. Um, the other countries on the list that they wanted to take out, um, they, they start to sort of, okay, delay on this. But by 2010, 11, you have the Arab Spring, which can be taken advantage of. And then you have Syria. So you have this kind of belligerent war fighting strategy evolving, but carrying on. In Syria, of course, Russia intervened in um, and 2015 or 16, and directly to stop Damascus from falling to mm. extremists. Um, and that marked a moment in, in, in that war where, in a sense, I think you could, historians might look back at it and say, well, this is the start of a real concerted pushback. So throughout the noughties, you know, from 2000 onwards, you know, countries were going along with Western belligerents, Afghanistan, Iraq. I, look, I know that you know France and Germany, did, you know, opposed it, and, and and Russia as well. But but you know there was a tolerance for Western war fighting, and I think Syria with the Russian intervention, and of course, essentially, it's a it's a stale in a way. It's a bit of a stalemate in Syria. I mean, the Syrian government has reclaimed <clears throat> large parts of the territory, but America still has a third of the country, the oil fields, and Turkey obviously holds um, Idlib province. Um, unbelievable. And so, but it's still kind of like a draw. So, so I, I think that is an indicator of the sort of the fault, the beginning of the faltering of the Western strategy of belligerence. Yeah. Um, and now I think they've kind of like is 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 a kind of a segue or, or a jump over to to the Ukraine um, where they're pushing hard there. And and as, as you said, it doesn't look like they're going to succeed. So I think it's important, you know, because it's part of that process of. Clearly, the West, um, the Western belligerence has come up as a realist would have predicted at some point that countries, powerful countries, will start to oppose it. And of course, the kind of classic realist you know, analysis would be as, as one power block or country starts to use force, others will sort of start to reassert and possibly even join together in order to block that. And, you know, I mean, you, know, you talked about. Brooks, but you can look at China, you can look at Iran, you can look at Russia, and you can see that as 
a, you know, a, a kind of predictable, a, a realist predictable uh, sort of pattern of states emerging and consolidating to push back against a belligerent block in the international system. Um, and, and you kind of feel, well, this is maybe what, 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 we're, what we're seeing and what we're living through at the moment in that kind of geopolitical, uh, on that geopolitical level. Um, so that's why I think you know, Syria is part of this, um, and and for many other sort of more detailed reasons. But in terms of the big picture, yeah, I think um, it's the first sign of the faltering. I mean, you could say that Afghanistan and Iraq was because the the, the military operations didn't lead to the flowering democracy and peace, which they claimed it would. Um, but at least they kind of, if, you know, they sort of held the territory sort of thing for a considerable mm. length of time. But with, but, with I mean, Syria, they, they it was blocked, and now we're with Ukraine, and yeah, it's difficult to see how they're going to win either of them with the way things are going internationally. To be quite honest, but how how is it that that Syria has managed to resist um, for so long? Is it because um, Al Bashir <coughs> Assad is uh, is a, is is a good leader? I mean, Gaddafi fell quite quickly. Um, I, I couldn't answer that question with with any kind of authority. I, I can surmise. I mean, I, I think that the Russian intervention was significant. Um, I also think that you know Syria was a, a much more cohesive state, um, probably than say Libya. I mean, Iraq had been sanctioned for you know ten years after Gulf War One and was was considerably weakened. Afghanistan was Afghanistan. Um, so it's, it's quite a tough country that they, in a sense, that they were going up against, although, you know, they poured huge resources into trying to overthrow the Syrian government. Um, but in the same way, you know, so if, if you were to say to a military commander, right, okay, you need to invade Iraq. And okay, okay, we've, we decimated the military in 10 years ago. The country's been under sanctions for 10 years. Uh, we can probably roll in there, as they did. It took them about four or five weeks. Syria is okay. That's going to be more complicated. But say if you put to an American military commander, right, you need to send the tanks rolling into Iran. You know, you're talking about a serious fight um, mm. and so on. And, uh, you know, Syria is probably somewhere in between them. So I think probably just in material military terms, it was overreach uh, right. on the part of the West. But Russia did intervene, of course. Um, I think that's one part of explaining it. I mean, I mean, you know, maybe I'll be proven wrong in, in, in the coming months and years, but there's, there's always a sense in which, and I remember academics saying this at the time, or some academics saying this at the point of 9-11 when they uh, went into Afghanistan and then Iraq, is that this was understood that these were extreme policies that were being pursued, right? This is, this is, not, this is not sort of, okay, <laughs> we've had wars before, but, but not as, as blatant and as, as overt yeah. as, as they invading Iraq. And so, you know, it's got to be part of you which starts saying, well, okay, th these are big operations and this will be, you know, if they don't go according to plan, then there will be a drain upon resources, your damage morale of your armed forces. Um, and, and I think in a way, if, if it was this regime change plan, was it seven countries in five years, which Wesley Clark spoke about and which you can see in the documents and which I think is now well established. Obviously, after Iraq and Afghanistan, they realized that, well, we can't just keep on walking into countries. We need to employ different means. Yeah. And in a way, Syria and Syria was a covert war of regime change, whereas Iraq was a very overt one. Syria was covert. So there were supporting groups, extremist groups going into the country and so on, and then supporting elements within Syria who, who might have been opposed to the Syrian government. But by large part, it was, you know, supporting funding extremist groups, etc. That They had to do it covertly. But, you know, that's, that's all an indication of, okay, you know, this is um, of just over, overreaching, overstretching. Um, and so on. And, and I think if you look at the last 20 years, I mean, wouldn't you sort of expect this, if, if China had been doing this or Russia had been doing exactly this for the last 20 years, you'd be expecting um, it begin to perhaps be wearing, a little, becoming a little bit tired. And, and, and you, you can, I mean, I, I, you know, I have given talks, as I said, at NATO, but also I was at Saint-Serre in France, um, the military academy, just four years ago. And 
there was some conversation and some feedback coming from some people about the level of morale in the Western military and also in relation to the US military. And, and it was described to me by somebody who's vaguely in a position to, to know that morale was fairly low, um, unsurprisingly, mm. given all of these wars and given everything that had happened, Abu Ghraib, all of these things which flowed out of the, these conflicts and so on. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you need to, wars need militaries who are, you know, who have morale and want to fight. And, and it's not surprising, perhaps, that we've got to a point where after all of these conflicts that the kind of energy in the system has perhaps dissipated. Um, that, I mean, I, I could be wrong here, but there must be some people in the U.S. military um, represented by the sort of Tulsi Gabbard kind of position that sort of, if you keep pushing this hard against Russia, this is going to take us into a war which could become a nuclear war. And before that, it's, this is not a war that we can win. And uh, you the know, can't so, win. Yes, so so there must be you know people in the military who, who are not the kind of you know the politicize the ideologues who are just thinking, going, no way, this is we we can't allow ourselves to be dragged into this. Um, so I think for all of these reasons, this, this creates this kind of you know potential resistance in within the system within the war machine of the West to. Uh, these conflicts, which you know, you know, might be a, a factor in, in in what's been going on, but might be a, a factor in helping bring them to an end at some point. Um, but there, there's got to be a sense in which you know you you, you can't just keep on getting away with this forever, um, and so on. And you do exhaust yourself at some point. And, and I don't see the West as having a huge amount of allies. I, you can see these tremendous transformations potentially with the global global financial structure of course with one caveat we don't know where the whole WEF central bank yeah. issue is going to go but there's clearly R Russia does not as in terms of my sort of um, a, uh, uninformed reading of it doesn't seem to be particularly worried about the sanctions issue <laughs> um, no, it seems just... to me that, that Europe is, <laughs> yeah. is going to be the one <laughs> yeah. hit really hard by this um, so, you know, you, you just get a sense of this, again, this, this kind of, sort of re realist analysis of this shift in the balance of power and so on. And, and Multi the end multipolar. Of, yeah, you, exactly. It's a shift towards multipolarity. But again, with this important caveat is that there is this technocracy, there is this yes. element overlaying and whether it's do, do we want to say it's under underlying it all or it's over overlaying it's, you know however you i know what you visual, mean however you visualize these things you know that that and to me is the kind of the, the really big question now is is that sort of i, I suspect there probably is a, a break between the west along uh, the lines we've been it's, describing it's sort but of, at the same time there's this other these other processes going on and i yeah. you know I, I, I think you know these technologies, AI, digital ID. These technologies are, are so seductive for governments and powerful governments. Yeah. Um, you know that they, they just they want to get their filthy hands over it and, and use it. Um, and you know, and I think there is a case being made that um, you know authoritarian countries with authoritarian. <laughs> Um, uh, cultures, which obviously the Chinese political system has clearly, um, you know, are going to be just as, as, if not more, liable to want to use this kind of technology as, as Western governments, which at least have this kind of you know, cultural backdrop, backdrop of liberty and, and so on. Um, yeah. So you know, you, you can see, you know, in, in that sense, you can see the war in Ukraine is is, is maybe a, a reshuffling of the geopolitical kind of pack of cards going on. It's quite but, symbolic, yeah. But but then but then there's going to be all of these other um, developments, which you know I, I think it's going to still leave us in, in in democratic states in the West fighting for our our future and our liberty and so on. But yes, what's so strange to me, Piers, is that. It, it it appears that Western democracy kind of works integral with propaganda because I can't I can't I can't think of 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 a Western democracy that doesn't impose 
propaganda in its daily um, in its in its daily regime. Um, I, as you know, I'm a political cartoonist of what 16, 17 years, and if I go to the books that I've published and I look at my work regarding Syria, I don't think I would draw that any of that now. And that's my own, you know, that's my own upbringing. That's my own education. But that's also a result of propaganda because I always saw uh, th that sort of Western um, exceptionalism as a good thing. Yeah. Um, but what, what, what are you saying? That the, the West has, has never been democratic? Or I, I'm not sure. I'm just, that, that, that no, always... I'm just... Sorry. No, I'm just saying uh, there doesn't seem to be. Uh, is it possible to have democracy without propaganda? Yeah, I, I think that propaganda is is anathema to democracy. That, that that propaganda undermines people's ability to understand what's going on and then to influence their governments. It's, it's a tool of manipulation, and. So but to say that there's always been a lot of um, propaganda in democracies, etc., um, is, is, is not a way of, of saying that, um, okay, it, it doesn't change the fact that what we've seen over the last two years, things have got considerably worse. Mm. Okay. So, you know, we, we need to think about, we need to just recognize what's been happening in the last two years. What, not, I'm not saying you, but just everyone needs to remind themselves that, you know, we've had a whole population that's locked down. We've had the threat of forced injections, for heaven's sake. Yeah. These are extraordinary. We have massive levels of censorship off the charts, as well as huge levels of propaganda. Things are, uh, things are as bad as they can, be poss can possibly get without all the lights completely going off. So we're in a very bad situation now. Before that, it wasn't great. Um, there was a lot of propaganda, as you say. People were propagandized, especially about wars, but also propagandized you know, about what's going on within their own countries and their own democracies. The system was not working well, no doubt about it. Um, and it had been in a kind of, I mean, I talked about in an interview earlier today about this kind of decline, this kind of traces decline from Eisenhower's military industrial complex when he stepped down and then JFK comes in and, and gone again mm. and all the other assassinations. And, and then you get to the point of 9-11 and you have continuity of government, bulk data collection, and then you get to COVID-19 and you've got this, you can just trace this erosion of our institutions and democracy. Um, it's getting, just getting worse and worse and worse and worse until you hit the point, you know, now where you know you have lockdowns and injections and you have clear co corruption of public health by big pharma and so on and, and yeah. etc so things have, have come at, as, as bad as they can possibly get without us just all the lights being out um and so on and so that means okay so now we can wake up to this crisis but then when we look back at what was happening before yeah i mean thing, things were bad institutions were being slowly eroded so you know, and in a way, we've got to where we are today because of propaganda, because propaganda has deceived Western publics about things such as 9-11 and the global war on terror. It's deceived American publics about the assassination of JFK and the other assassinations in, 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 in the 1960s. Um, you know, the Viet Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Vietnam took a long time to go, et cetera. So all of these... Um, you know, propaganda has, has, has allowed, it's enabled this decline to happen. So if we come through this uh, crisis point where, you know, we're on life support here, <laughs> at our democracies, if we're able to come through this, then time is to turn around and look at, okay, how have our institutions come to be corrupted and come to fail? You know, how do we start to rebuild them? How do we build a society where, you don't have propaganda uh, on, on the levels that we've seen it. Um, how do you actually have proper dialogical communication which allows people to you know, honestly, rationally, and fairly debate and discuss issues of the day? It's not impossible. 
to create that kind of system. Um, and, and those are the kind of things that we have to build and so on. Um, but it, it, but it is, it, it's the, the problem has been there and for a long time, and it's just, just got a hell of a lot worse in the last two years. Um, and you know, it's, it's not me just moaning on about the state of the world. I mean, objectively, <laughs> no. we had COVID-19. I mean, look, look, look up. I'm, I'm what, halfway around the world. Yeah, I'm halfway yeah. around the world, and I can concur. Yeah, and we're almost. You know, we could. Because we, you know, I don't think we are going to go to war with Russia, but we're in a military conflict over the Ukraine. Um, this is this is this is not this is not looking good. It's just getting worse. Um, so, you know, I think. Um, I, I think you know we we we. we it is ultimately an opportunity, but it does. You look, it means recognizing that a lot of what we've told, been told, and a lot of what we thought is incorrect. Um, the West has been very good at presenting itself as as, as, as the morally superior entity in the international system um, yeah. and covering up its wars. I mean, you know, guns. You know, I'm sure you have studied the Vietnam conflict and look at the scale of that conflict and look at the level of firepower used in, in Vietnam and in Laos and Cambodia and you know, follows on from French colonialism. Um, you know, this, this is a, a huge atrocity. Um, and the West is really good at just sweeping that under the carpet. I, I saw it all the time when I was an academic. You know, academics don't like going into those territories where difficult questions are asked about their, their societies and their actions. Um, not all, but but still a, a large chunk. Um, and I, I think it's you know, I think that there is a time for humility. If, if we're staying with the kind of GSG, this is a time for humility for people, uh, especially in the West, um, yeah. as well as at the same time waking up to the fact that we we have power structures in the West which are corrupted by corporations, conflicts of interest, and, and we have, unfortunately, a, a, a group of um, crazies <laughs> manifesting themselves Te in the Klaus Schwarz Technocrats. who are talking mm. about transhumanism, the fusion of body and technology and, and so on. Uh, you know, it's the stuff of nightmares and good and bad Hollywood you... movies. Um, Pierce, how yeah. do you navigate the fog of war? Well... First of all, in you know, on the specific, I'm glad you got me grounded back to <laughs> concrete sort of discussion. Um, ramble on. Um, so you can tell I'm tired. Um, well, the first thing is, 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 is to the first thing is, is, is to recognise it. In wartime, you have huge levels of propaganda from all sides because it's a war situation and. Lying and deceiving and distorting is seen as part of winning wars. So mm. you're going to be surrounded by it. So if you can start by recognizing that, that's a good thing. So that allows you just to take what your government or what the other government or any government is saying with a pinch of salt and think, well, okay. Um, you know, we know that historically in wartime, you huge levels of bias and propaganda. So, right, let's work with that. And we know that. And then you can start to sift and you can start to navigate of war and um, that's helpful um i mean you, you can also take the kind of sort of line that i have sort of somewhat taken in the last few weeks is that you know when you're in the middle of a hot conflict um it can be close on impossible to really sit down and start to disentangle the truth and the lies i know people are doing this a lot of people i know are, are busily doing this um, but say sort of the work I used to do on Syria, which I still do on Syria and the chemical weapons allegations, m most of that was generated out of quite a lot of deep thinking and research and so on, rather than just following events as they were happening um, and so on. And they say, well, we think this is going on, et cetera. And, you know, I, it's, it's maybe worth just allowing yourself, cutting yourself some slack and think, well, in a kind of hot war situation, you know that everyone's going to be lying. It's probably going to be close on impossible to really get a handle on what's going on as things are happening. 
I could be could be over overrating that somewhat, but you know you, you can you can just say, well, you know, who knows? <laughs> you, you, you have to be deeply skeptical about information from all sides, and then maybe wait to a point where the conflict's over and and there's more ability to sift information. But um, are there not are there not some markers that you can that you can use? Let me give you uh, an anecdote. Yeah. If mm. if RT, for example, is completely banned in the West. Surely that's a marker for you to go, okay, well, actually, maybe I should be going to go see what RT has to say. Well, I, th that's a good point, because I, I do think the very rapid banning of RT and Sputnik was an indicator of a lack of confidence on the part of Western governments, whether it's because they were not confident about winning, inverted commas, or whether they were intending on, on engaging in a high level of deception as part mm. of their warfare strategy, I don't know. It was a bit of a sign. I mean, certainly that should be an indicator to somebody that, yes, you definitely want to see what's being censored. But what, what I would say in, in, in wartime, that should be, ideally, that would be the default position. You should um, listen to what your government's media are saying and then listen to what the enemy is saying. I mean, you know, if we'd all listened to Saddam Hussein prior to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, you know, he was telling the truth. I don't have any weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> we should have listened to him. Um, and so, on. so, so you know, it's, it's obviously always good to try and see. And to then, I mean, you said, okay, how do you navigate the fog of war? It's good to say, okay, we well, got two sides clearly, and then you see what they're saying, and then start to maybe set their arguments against each other, and then see, you know, is there evidence of deception there, or, or where is there? Where are they both saying the same thing, uh, you know, in, in agreement? Okay, so that probably is the truth and so on. Um, but th th those are techniques you can use. You can you know, read up on literature and war and conflict and media and, and see the examples from history of, of you know, demonization, lies, deception. And, that, and yeah. that, can, can, that takes a long time to do, but it can start to give you this kind of intellectual... Uh, ammunition to actually sort of start to think through more fully, um, you know, what am I seeing? I mean, it should, after COVID-19, um, it should go without saying that everyone should treat mainstream media with extreme caution. Um, you know, once upon a time, I used to say, you know, I used to say to students, well, you know, you, the mainstream media, is, it's worth hearing what they have to say because there's an element of truth. I mean, it just no. seems to me now that the, the corporate mainstream media is in such a bubble. I mean, my understanding is in America that most of them can't even come to terms with Russiagate. The, the, the wheels have completely come off Russiagate. You know, I mean, Hillary Clinton's being sued by Trump now for the Trump dossier, which yeah. apparently her team don't, paid don't for. Even mention, don't but, even mention Hunter. But she didn't mention, but, but she didn't have anything to do with it, apparently, which she doesn't call kind of thing. You, know, you have... You know, the mainstream media can't even, even when the wheels come off propaganda campaigns which have just only just happened, they can't bring themselves to acknowledge it or to accept mm. it. The OPCW, chemical weapons issue in Syria, the mainstream media can't, you know, listen to whistleblowers and so on. They, they just can't go there. And I, and I do think that sort of the Western elite media has just gotten itself into such a, um, it's, it's in such a, a diminishing bubble now, um, and, and they can't. They can't. You know, the, the ones who are left there, because <laughs> lots mm. of people I think have, have moved away, and it's sort of a point I made earlier about the decline in support for mainstream media. But the ones who are left there in that little world of uh, Russia is evil and bad, and the West is good, and we never did anything. And Julian Assange, well, you know, he he should be in jail type mentality. Uh, these people have got no. I'm sure they've got nowhere to go mentally. They, they can't escape that. They can't concede their entire life's work has been <laughs> a deception. Well, you know, broadly speaking, just manufacturing consent to use Chomsky's term. Um, they, they they just can't go there. It'd be too damaging to their sense of self-esteem and and so on. Um, they're, they're stuck there. They're stuck in that bubble. But everyone else, I think, is just beginning to move away and go. You know, um, uh, you know, the media isn't really fit for purpose, and increasingly, people are saying this mm. about academia. I mean, look at the number of academics who who've fallen out of the system because of COVID nineteen, and they're just turning around saying, "Yeah, you know, I saw." Is it um, Martin Kulldorff was 
writing today about the problem with science research and funding streams, saying yeah. this is completely, he's, he's basically saying this is a very broken system and so on. And so, I, I, you know, I think we've got a lot of people who are now just looking back at the system, looking back at our system, thinking, well, these are very, very broken. And COVID-19, you know, if you had your eyes half open with 9-11 and the global war on terror, you realize there's something very badly wrong here. Yeah. Um, but I think with COVID-19 and what's happened with the science and the science and all that kind of stuff, is if if you don't learn, you know, if, if that's not enough to show that the system ain't working. I, I don't know, you know, there's nothing else you could do um, to, to show that. So I, I think you know that they're stuck there. They're stuck in that bubble, and I think um, there's another way of putting it. There's no way. I mean, a way. I think that, that there should be no way back for them. I, I think we need we need new media. We need to start listening to the people who we've been silencing Hi. yeah exactly <laughs> oh we, we need you know there's um i mean have you ever heard of habermas and the public sphere but, um no. he's, he's the he's the political theorist but he talks about the public sphere and he talks about how this sort of emerged in the 17th century and it's a it's a kind of idealized view of, of what he then creates as this kind of template for what the media should be like in a democratic society. It creates this public sphere where debate occurs. And he, and he has this kind of historical parallel to that 17th century European countries where you had this kind of very healthy, vibrant, he says, probably a little bit of rose-tinted glasses, but you had this healthy, vibrant sort of discussion and conversations and pamphlets circulating and a lively, you know, people chatting, you know, talking politics in the cafes and all that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, but there's the, a the sense in which that captures what you, we potentially have now with independent media and with people such as yourself. People are actually just going out there, engaging, producing, you know, quality work and encouraging discussion and free-ranging debate. Um, and you know that that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that we need to I think sort of capitalize on if we can get past this crisis. The mainstream media really do need to just close down, and we, we send them off to look after the elderly and clean the parks. Nearly all of them. Um, I need and, to challenge and, and, you though. Yeah, go on. <clears throat> you using the word mainstream media. Michael Mellis has made the point that we shouldn't say that. Uh, no, we we should say have. corporate. Which he says we should say corporate media because, for example, Joe Rogan is more mainstream than CNN. Yeah, that was my mistake. I'm sorry. I should have said corporate. <laughs> I know. I, um, I've been told off about that many occasions. I, I just slip into old habits kind of thing. There's but also yeah, the term legacy media. And I, I suppose legacy is also not a terrible word, uh, I guess. But as long as we don't say mainstream. <laughs> yeah, I, for sure. No, you're right. And also, I mean, corporate hits that problem where people say, what about public service broadcasters like the BBC? Yeah. So I think that term legacy perhaps captures Might it. be better in some but, you know, but The idea is we, we, have to, we have to reinvigorate the public sphere. The public sphere, according yes. to Habermas, works when you have lots of small independent voices media. It doesn't work when you have this concentration and corporations dominating because that just corrupts the yeah. whole process. And, and this is what we should get. Yeah, it should be decentralized. We should have a large mm -hmm. number of multiple voices and, and so on. Um, and that's the way you build a you know, rigorous debate and create a healthy democracy. Um, so, you know, the, yes, what, I know. The thing, what you're doing is the kind of thing that, that you know, is, is, is the way forward. And I'd say academics mm. should probably start doing it as well, creating, you know, independ independent academia, I think, is, 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 is something which could... In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? <clears throat> a crystal ball. <laughs> no. um, I, I, I was quite certain before, wasn't I? Well, no, I, I said something about I see a lot of... Um, you were you were quite optimistic last time, but I don't want to I don't want to say too much. I don't want to influence yeah. what you're going to say I, now. I think, I think I, I okay. There's, there's there's a little bit of optimism in here. I see some regaining of ground for the Democrat stroke resistance, at least in the West. Um, but I see 
that that ground will be gained through organization and you know sort of consolidation of, of what we have and I, I, I see some pulling back um, and that, and I, I see some adjustment in terms of people driving the agenda wherever we want to put, place the location of power on that I, I, I think part of the elites have realized that there's resistance and that if they push harder there'll be more resistance so I, I think we're not heading towards a kind of a 50-50 compromise, but, but, but some ground has been regained from, say, a year ago where I think, you know, it was looking, to me, the last mile on site question is looking chaotic, right? It was like, so I think we're going we're to be locked down again. They're going to bring it. We're, I was expecting mandatory vaccinations in Germany by February. You know, sort of, I, I think that that's been, we've pulled back from that somewhat. Um, but no, no scope for complacency. But that, that, that's what I, that's what I think is going to happen. Um, if that makes sense. Where can people uh, follow your work? Um, well, I've I, I published some papers with Panda. I'm, I'm working with Panda at the moment, um, and their website's good. So it's a couple of my articles and that, but much wider material, obviously, on, on COVID nineteen. Um, I've had my own WordPress site. Um, I'm on Twitter, Piers Robinson One, is it? Or is it Piers.Robinson One? I don't know. If, if, people, if people find me on Twitter and there's a picture of me there, so they can tell it's me. And, you know, I think I have most of the major websites linked to either working groups or, for example, the Organization for Propaganda Studies on that Twitter handle. So um, people can see um, what I do there. I mean, uh, People can put up my name into Google News and read lots of nasty newspaper articles about me written by journalists smearing me over my work on Syria. Um, well, then, you, then, you, know that, then you know it's worth reading. Yeah. Um, then, then it's worth reading, yeah. Um, but, but, but for sure, I, I, I've got a WordPress site which kind of I think has... You know, but um, I, my stuff is scattered all over the place in a way. Um, Piers Robertson, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Uh, yeah, thank you for you joining me in the trenches. Sorry, I was getting sleepy towards the end, but uh, it kept me up late. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.